But this morning I want to take you to Matthew chapter 20. And I want to take you to a parable that Jesus told. A parable which illustrates for us the grace of God and salvation. Matthew chapter 20. Uh, Let's read this passage together, starting in verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. As our sister Jenny mentioned, one of our favorite parables as a church has been the parable of Luke 15, the the parable of the prodigal son. We love that parable because it illustrates for us the grace of God and salvation, the response of the loving Heavenly Father who runs to sinful prodigals and who embraces them and welcomes them into his home and rejoices over them. We also love that parable because it instructs us not only of the grace of God and salvation, but also of the legalist response to grace. We have in that story not only the younger brother and his story of coming back into the father's house, but we have the story of the older brother who sees the father's grace toward the younger son and who responds in bitterness and in anger toward the father. That parable taught us of the grace of God and salvation, and also the threat of legalism to the human heart. And this parable that Jesus is going to teach us in Matthew 20 is going to teach us the similar lessons. It's going to teach us of the grace of God and salvation, but it's also going to teach us of the threat of legalism in our hearts, which is a barrier to experiencing and receiving that grace that God has to offer us. The difference is that the story in Luke 15 was a family drama. It was a story of fathers and sons. This story that Jesus teaches us is a business story. It's from the world of labor and managers and employers and wages. So Jesus not only wants to talk to us and reach us at the level of our families and our relationships, but he also wants to reach people in professions, teachers, lawyers, accountants, laborers. He wants to talk to us at the level of business. And that is what this story is all about. The story can be titled The Parable of the Generous Landowner because the landowner in this story is really the central character. Even though the workers in the story are prominent, it really is a story about the generous landowner. It really is about understanding his generous heart. It's a story about his gracious spirit. It's a story about his heart of compassion. Jerry Bridges has written this, that this parable is one of the best illustrations of the grace of God in the life of believers. 
And the emphasis of the parable is on the landowner and his generosity. The central figure of this story is the landowner. And with that focus, let's walk through the story together and listen eagerly as Jesus teaches us about the grace of God. Verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. There we're introduced to the central character in the story. He is called a master of a house. The idea here is that this is a rich man. He is a wealthy man. He owns a house, and on this house there is land, and on the land he's planted a vineyard for crops. And the idea here is that this would have been a man of means. He would have been a man who has significant resources, He owned a vineyard. And as the story goes, harvest time has come for this man and his vineyard. Harvest time is crunch time for a farmer, just as tax season is crunch time for accountants and finals week is crunch time for students. This would have been crunch time for the master of the house. He would have needed significant laborers to come and to harvest the vineyard and the crops. And so he goes out to the marketplace to hire laborers for the harvest. Now going into the marketplace, he would have hired what would have been known as the day laborers of biblical times. The men in the marketplace would have been men who would have been temporary employees. They would have worked a day's work for a day's wage. Uh, These would be men who would be at the bottom of the biblical economic ladder, They weren't hired servants. They had no guarantee of employment for tomorrow. They basically lived day to day, and they stood in the marketplace on a daily basis, and if they were hired that day, they would work just that day and receive a day's wage. And if they didn't work that day, or if they weren't hired, then they would go home with nothing to show for it, or nothing to eat. Uh, These would have been men who were poor, And because they were poor and because they were defenseless, they were often taken advantage of. In fact, in the law, Deuteronomy 24, verse 15, God said of the day laborer, you shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. God said, To employers, you need to treat the day laborer with fairness and pay him at the end of the day what he has worked for. Because why? This is a man who who doesn't have resources. He needs that day's wage just to eat and just to live. And so the master of the house goes into the marketplace to find day laborers to come and to harvest his vineyard. And he would have been hiring men who had a desperation for work. They would have needed work, and they would have been happy to receive any employment that they would receive that day. Verse 2 says, After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. Now, the Hebrew workday began at 6 a.m. and stretched all the way to 6 p.m. It was basically a 12-hour workday from dawn to dusk. So the idea here is he goes early in the morning at 6 a.m. and he hires a group of day laborers to go and hire to harvest his vineyard. And he agrees with them, verse 2 says, for a denarius a day. Now, what I want you to note about this wage is that this would have been a tremendously generous wage for a day laborer. A denarius a day would have been the wage of a Roman soldier. It would be the equivalent of your boss saying to you, I'll pay you for this day, and just because I love you, just because I'm compassionate, just because I'm a merciful boss, I'll give you a hefty bonus. Not because you worked for it, just because I want to be nice to you. They would have been thrilled to receive a denarius a day. The idea here is that already you see the generosity of the landowner in his heart. That he's not just about fairness and giving people what they've worked for, but he's a generous man. And he pays them not according to what they've worked for. He pays them beyond and above what they have earned. And he agrees with them for a 
denarius. We can imagine these men going to the vineyard absolutely overjoyed. Just a, a minute ago, they were standing in the marketplace uncertain about what their future might hold, and now they're saying, at the end of the day, I'm going to be paid a very generous wage. And so they begin their work at 6 a.m. in the vineyard. Now the story continues. Verse 3. And going about the third hour, he saw others standing in the marketplace, and to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. The third hour, that's, that would be 9 o'clock a.m. So remember, there's a 6 o'clock group, the first group of men who were sent into the vineyard for denarius a day. Now it's 9 o'clock, three hours have passed. He goes back into the marketplace and he hires a second group of men. And he says, you go into the vineyard too. Now you imagine these men, they would have been standing around for three hours and the first wave of employers would have passed them by and they would be standing in the marketplace and they'd be saying, no one's going to hire us. We're going to not be able to eat today and not be able to work today. And they would have been thrilled and overjoyed to see this landowner come to them and say, you go into the, mark, you go into the vineyard too. The difference between the 9 o'clock group, mark this carefully, and the 6 o'clock group is that with this second group, he makes no guarantee of wages. You remember with the first group, he says, I will pay you a denarius at the end of the day. It was fixed. It was set. With the second group, he just says, verse 4, you go into the vineyard, and I'll give you what's right. He doesn't set an amount. He doesn't make a contract. He just says, trust me, and at the end of the day, I will give you whatever is right. The second group of men are in no position to negotiate. They head into the vineyard. They hope for the best. And verse 5 says, so they went. Story goes on, verse 5. Going out again about the sixth hour, that would have been 12 o'clock noon. And the ninth hour, that's 3 p.m., he did the same. Two more times the landowner goes back into the marketplace he went at 6 o'clock for the first group. He went at 9 o'clock for the second group. He goes at 12 o'clock for the third group. He goes at 3 p.m. for the fourth group. Four times he goes into the marketplace and four times he hires another group of men. And you can imagine that each group is growing more and more desperate for work. If the 9 o'clock group felt a sense of hopelessness and desperation, you can imagine the noon group you can imagine the 3 o'clock group. You can imagine at 3 o'clock, you would have seen all the employers come and go. And who's going to hire you at 3 p.m. when the day ends at 6 o'clock? And even if someone were to hire you, how much would you be able to earn in three hours of work? That would be a fourth of the day. And maybe you'd be able to take home a fourth of a day's pay, not enough to feed your family, but he goes out and he hires 6 o'clock, 9 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 3 o'clock, four groups of men, and they're all working in his vineyard. Now it's quitting time in the story. 5 o'clock rolls around. End of the workday. Less diligent employees, it's the time where they start cleaning out their desk getting a cup of water, cleaning out their projects, wrapping up their phone calls. It's the end of a long, hard work day. Sun's going down, evening's coming, and everything's wrapping up. And verse 6 says, in about the 11th hour, 5 o'clock, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. Now we've looked at this day, right? 9 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 3 o'clock. Each group gets more and more desperate for work. 
what would this five o'clock group, the 11th hour, what would they be feeling in their hearts as they began to see the sun go down with one hour left? They would be feeling, there's no way. There's no way I'm going to get hired. I mean, all the employers have come and gone. I mean, even if I did get hired, I'd be hired for an hour's work. That's not enough. That's just a pittance according to what I need to support my family, and to support myself. One hour left in the workday, and the owner goes, and he finds these men, and he says, you go into the vineyard too. Now stop and look at this five o'clock group for a second. And let me ask you this question. Why would a landowner go at five o'clock and hire a group of men to work in his vineyard when the end of the workday was at six o'clock? Why would he do that? Why on earth would he put men under his employ when he knows that there's only an hour left in the day? If you think about it, it can't be because he needs their labor. It can't be because he feels like they're going to be so productive for his harvest. The only reason why a man like this would go into a marketplace like that and hire men at 5 o'clock is because he has a heart of compassion. Because he sees these men and he feels pity for them. It's because he sees these men and he sees their need. He sees their desperate plight. And because his heart is moved, it can't be because they're so valuable to him. It's because he wants to be generous to them. And that is exactly what this landowner does. He sees, these help, he sees these men in their helpless state. He has pity upon their difficult plight. And out of his compassionate heart, he hires them to go back into his vineyard. And so they go. One hour passes. It's quitting time, 6 o'clock. Five groups of laborers line up to get their pay. There's the 6 a.m. group. There's the 9 a.m. group, there's the 12 o'clock group, there's the 3 o'clock group, and then there is the 5 o'clock group looking fresh and unwearied, unsuntanned. They're, they just got there. They just got orientation completed, and they're ready to get their pay. Verse 8. And when evening came... The owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. He says it's payday, it's pay time, he's a fair man. I'm going to pay these men at the end of the day for their day's labor. But he does something very unusual. He says to the foreman, I want you to pay them in a very specific order. You're going to take the men who were hired last and you're going to pay them first. You're going to pay the 5 o'clock group first, then you're going to work your way backwards and pay the 3 o'clock group, the noon group, the 9 a.m. group, and you're going to pay the 6 a.m. group last. You're going to pay the first last, and you're going to pay the last first. Very specific order. Now, let me just simplify the story for you a little bit as we continue. Five groups of laborers, but really, the rest of the way, Jesus is only going to focus on two. He's going to contrast the five o'clock group who worked one hour in the cool of the day with the 6 a.m. group who worked 12 hours, the long period of time, and were hired first. Those are the two groups. Okay? Parable of the prodigal son, there were two sons, younger son, older son. Contrast between those two. That was the main emphasis of the story. Here it's going to be two laborers, 5 o'clock group, 6 o'clock group. Those hired first, those hired last. That's going to be the contrast. 
Imagine the scene with me. The five o'clock group comes up to the foreman to get their pay. And they're like, we're just happy to be here. We worked one hour. We didn't even get sweaty. We're not even tired. I mean, we barely, you know, in our language, we barely even got to our desk and find out where the coffee room is, and, and we didn't even start work, really. And they're thinking in their hearts, we're going to get paid for an hour's work. I mean, if the going rate is a denarius a day, we may get one-twelfth of a, of a denarius, and we don't even deserve that because we didn't barely got started with our work. They're really not expecting much when pay time comes. And verse 9 says, And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, the five o'clock group, each of them received a denarius. They received a denarius for working one measly little hour. And I imagine it that these guys are jumping up and down. I mean, they're high-fiving. They're, they're hooting and hawing. They're like, we cannot believe our good fortune. What a deal. You work an hour, you get a full day's wage. I mean, how many of you have bosses like that? How many of you guys have bosses that are like, you know, just work one month this year for me and uh, take the rest of the year off, and I'll pay you a full year's wage. Just, I mean, how many of you have bosses like that? I was thinking this week about doing, I was doing my taxes and thinking, I, I, would, I wish I had a tax agent like this. They said to me, Dan, you know, just pay one, year, one year's taxes and then take the next 11 years off. Just because I'm a generous IRS agent, I have compassion in my heart. We know that that's not the real world. What Jesus is doing is he is putting the character of grace on display in a business setting, and he's showing us how unbelievable and how shocking it is. Who on earth has a boss like this? who says you can work one hour for me and I will pay you a full day's wage and even give you a bonus. These men are thrilled. Just an hour ago, they were hopeless, helpless, hungry, and dejected. They were called into the vineyard and they get paid a denarius. What Jesus is saying here is, these are men who have received grace. They're paid according to grace, not according to merit. They're not paid according to what they have worked. They are paid beyond what they have worked for. It is outrageous grace. It is out of proportion to what they have done. Now just a note here. Jesus is teaching kingdom principles, not economic principles, so please don't expect your boss to do this to you this week. Please don't say to him, I don't want to be a legalist, so I'm only going to work one hour, and I want to be paid according to grace. And if you have employee, if you manage employees, don't feel like you have to do this to your employees because you're going to go bankrupt. And that's not the point of Jesus' story. The point of Jesus' story is... That grace is unlike anything that we experience in this world. We live in a world that rewards people according to merit. And when you put the grace of God on display in a setting that we're all familiar with, employee relations, it doesn't make any sense. It is unlike anything you've experienced in this world. And the implication of that is that you and I, if we're going to live by God's grace, we need to unlearn much of what we have learned in this world because everything in this world that we are used to operates under the principle of merit, not grace. 
in school. You were taught the principle of merit. In your career, you were taught the principle of merit. You earn, you get what you earn. In your relationships, you have never had a relationship that treated you in pure, undefiled, 100% unfiltered grace. In your relationship with God, it is grace alone. And you and I need to unlearn a lot of what we've learned in every other relationship in this world if we're going to come to God by grace and live by grace and trust in grace and exercise our faith in grace. Well, that's the five o'clock group. They were paid according to grace. I told you the contrast is going to be with the six o'clock group. What's their response to payday? If the five o'clock group illustrates God's grace in a believer's life, the 6 a.m. group is going to illustrate the legalistic response to grace. Verse 10. Now when those hired first came, the 6 o'clock group, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. You can imagine the 6 a.m. group. And just put yourself in their shoes for a second. You've worked all day. You're hot. You're sweaty. You're sunburned. You work through the blazing apex of the sun's heat. And you're just weary at the end of the day. And you see these 5 o'clock people get a full denarius. What are you thinking? You're thinking in your heart, Man, payday is going to be good for me. This owner pays a denarius an hour. And I've worked 12 hours. I can't wait for my payday. You're getting in line and you're anticipating, I'm not going to have to work for a week after this. This is going to be the greatest payday I've ever gotten. And you get to the front of the line, and the foreman gives you a denarius. You get the same wage as these guys who worked one hour. And you're like, in your heart, what's up with that? These guys, they didn't even break a sweat. Now, wait a second. Reason would say, wait a second, at 6 o'clock when you were hired in the marketplace, you were overjoyed to get a denarius for a day, right? Reason would say, at 6 o'clock, you were helpless, hopeless, you had no guarantee for any income, and you were overjoyed just to be hired. Reason would say, you struck a deal with the landowner, and you said, I'll work for denarius a day, and at that time, you thought it was incredibly gracious and generous. Why on earth are you complaining now? You know why they're complaining? It's not because they're being treated unfairly, because they're not. The reason why they're complaining is because they see other people being treated graciously. The legalist response to grace is one of anger, is one of antagonism. Legalism can't stand seeing other people be blessed beyond what they have earned because legalism says in your heart, I should get what I deserve and I should get what I have earned. And when legalism sees other people 
being blessed in ways that they have not worked for and do not merit. Legalism is angry and can't stand it to see others being blessed. Jonah saw the Ninevites being blessed with salvation. He couldn't stand being God, being gracious to such sinful people. The older brother looked at the younger brother. He couldn't stand seeing the younger brother receive blessing. The Pharisees saw Jesus blessing the tax collectors and sinners, and they couldn't stand seeing grace on display in sinful people's lives. And this 6 a.m. group sees the 5 p.m. group being blessed, and they're angry. They're angry. It says in verse 11, they grumbled at the master of the house. It's an onomatopoeic word. It's a Greek word that sounds like egogunzo. It's like a word that sounds like what they were doing. They were... How can they be so gracious to them when they haven't worked as much as I have? They grumbled at him. They were outraged. And if we're honest, we can relate to their anger. Say you have a coworker in the next cubicle, works same job as you do, but he's a slacker. You're ten times more efficient than he is. You're ten times more capable. You're always early. He's always late. You pick up his labor. He asks you and bugs you for help all the time. You've been at the company ten times longer than he has. And when promotion time comes, your boss promotes both of you at the same level. And in your heart, you're... How can you make us equal when I've worked so much harder than him? Jesus tells us this story because if we're honest with ourselves, we naturally identify with the 6 a.m. group. We naturally identify with this feeling of unfairness. It is a business story in a business world. In the business world, you're rewarded according to merit, not grace. Jesus flips the equation and shows us a story in which a boss records, rewards people according to grace, not merit, and the response of the hardworking laborers is outrage. Their outrage is that this last group has been made equal to them. Now, I love the landowner's response. Because he highlights that the grace he has shown to all laborers, that it isn't just grace, but it's, if I could use this term, it is sovereign grace. It's sovereign grace. Verse 13. But he replied to one of them, friend. You note there, it's, it's firm, but it's friendly. Friend. He's going to set them straight, but he still loves them. He still has mercy on them. I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. And then notice the word he repeats here when he describes his grace. Verse 14. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Why was I gracious to those men in that way? Because I choose to do so. Why am I gracious to you in this way? Because I choose to do so. Why am I gracious to 6 o'clock, 9 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 5 o'clock, all in different ways in different times, different expressions, yet grace to all. Why do I show my grace in that way? Because I choose to do so. Is it not right for me to choose to show my grace in whatever way I determine is best? If the riches are mine to begin with, 
don't I have the right to do with what I own, what I choose to do? He's saying, it's my wealth. It's my money. Are you going to question what I do with what I own? And just because I'm gracious to others does not mean I am being unfair to you. I'm gracious to all my workers, but in different ways and at different times. And Jesus ends the story by saying, so the last will be first and the first last. You'll notice that phrase begins the story as well in chapter 19, verse 30, but many who are first will be last and the last first. The five o'clock group are paid first. The six o'clock group is paid last, but all were equal because all received a denarius What does this phrase mean? The first shall be last and last shall be first. It means that in the kingdom of heaven, everyone is equal. Everyone is the same. Because everyone comes by grace, lives by grace, is rewarded by grace. Because all come by grace, everyone in the kingdom is the same. We are all equal. That's what the story is teaching us. Now let's connect the dots here as we respond to the parable. Who is the master of the house? I think that's obvious. He is God. God is the rich, generous, compassionate, gracious master who sovereignly dispenses grace in the manner he sees fit. The master of the house, he is God. Who are the laborers in the vineyard? They are believers. They are Christians. They are those who are in the kingdom of heaven. The laborers are those who have been called by grace through faith to receive salvation in Jesus Christ. They are those who have entered into the kingdom of heaven. Verse 1, this is a parable about the kingdom of heaven. These laborers are those who are in the kingdom. What does the duration of labor represent? What does this time difference represent? Represent. It simply represents the amount or the duration of service rendered unto Christ by Christians. It represents the amount or the duration of service rendered unto Christ by different Christians. We're not saved by works, and yet we are saved unto good works, right? Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for Good works. We are justified by faith alone, and yet the faith that justifies is never alone. It always results in good works. Good works are not the root of our salvation, yet they are the fruit of our salvation. And this parable teaches us that different Christians at different times will serve Christ in different ways. Some will serve Christ for many years and render great and sacrificial service unto the Lord. Others will serve Christ in fewer years or for a shorter duration. The parable teaches us that some serve more or some serve less. Some sacrifice much in the kingdom, some sacrifice relatively little. What the parable teaches us is that no matter how much or how little we serve, no matter how much or how little we sacrifice, all in the kingdom are equal. Because we are not accepted by God on the basis of our service to Christ. We are accepted by God on the basis of grace. The denarius, what does that represent? It simply represents eternal life. The blessings of salvation... Uh, The grace of salvation that is received in Christ. Chapter 19, verse 29. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. This is a parable about eternal life and it teaches us that all Christians who come into Christ's kingdom receive the same salvation regardless of whether they serve much or serve little whether they serve long or serve short, whether they serve Christ for 60 years faithfully or they come to Christ at the end of their life, all receive the same salvation. 
because it is grace. It is not merit. The parable is given to us to teach that the kingdom of heaven operates under a completely different principle than the principle of this world. It operates under grace and not by merit. Now, what is the lesson that I want us to learn from this parable? As one who cares for you, as one who loves you, as one who would desire to express God's heart of love for you, what, what would be the lesson I want you to come away with from this parable and what Jesus teaches us about grace and legalism? The lesson I want you to learn from this parable is that God's grace is surprisingly offensive to the human heart. That's the lesson I want you to come away with. God's grace is surprisingly offensive to the human heart. You might be saying, Dan, I don't know what you're talking about. I love grace. I and mean, we all love grace, right? We all love to talk about grace and sing about grace and we love grace. How can grace be an offensive thing? What this parable teaches is that grace is offensive. And what this passage would teach us is not just that grace is offensive to people in general. That's the parable of the prodigal son. The parable of the prodigal son is grace is offensive to people in general. When older brothers see younger brothers receiving grace, they get mad. And when religious people see Christians receiving grace, they get mad. This parable is a little more specific. What this parable is teaching us is not only is God's grace offensive to people, but God's grace is offensive to even Christians, even believers. Even those who are in the kingdom of heaven are, can be offended and outraged when they see God's grace on display in other people's lives. This is a parable about us. It's about Christians. And what it's saying to us is it's saying, Christian, believer, is there legalism in your heart? Have you, in your relationship with God, come into the kingdom by grace, but as you have progressed and as you have served Christ, reverted to a relationship of merit in which you feel that God owes you a certain blessing because of the good Christian life that you have lived? And are you offended when you see other people being blessed in ways that you have not been blessed in? Are you offended when less diligent Christians than you are blessed in ways that God has sovereignly chosen to withhold from your life? I can remember a few years ago, our family... We had four children, and we lived in a very small apartment. It was the kind of thing where our children got the master bedroom because that's the only place that we could put them. And if you ever had multiple children in a small place, they were bouncing off the walls. And, and I would go to housewarming parties for other believers in which they would welcome me into their brand-new tract home, gated security. Their walk-in closet was my entire apartment brand new furniture and I would go home honestly with Egunguzo, you know. <laughs> God, why? Why do you bless them and not me? I've been so much a better Christian than they have. I've served you longer. I've read more Bible. I've memorized more scripture. I've done more ministry. God, why? And I couldn't rejoice 
and the grace that was shown to others because of the legalism in my heart. Because the truth is that if I was honest with myself, that I was able to live in a two-bedroom apartment with four children and have food on the table and clothes on my back and a roof over my head and I wasn't freezing to death and I wasn't in hell because of my sin, that was grace. It was grace upon grace upon grace. But because I saw God's grace being put in other people's lives, I couldn't rejoice in the grace that God has shown to me. And I thought God was being unfair to me when the truth was he was just choosing to be gracious to others. You see, God's grace is surprisingly offensive to our hearts because of the innate legalism of our hearts. And specifically, this parable is applicable to all, but specifically it has special application to those of us who have been Christians for a number of years. I've been a Christian for 18 years now. I've served in full-time ministry for 13 of those 18 years. This parable is specifically addressed to me. It is specifically addressed to care group leaders, ministry leaders, those who have served on short-term mission trips, those who have served in the church for a number of years, those who have led Bible studies, those who have discipled others, those who have sacrificed for the name of Christ, those who have served diligently for an extended period of time. It is especially addressed to us and it's especially asking us to examine the legalism that is in our hearts and asking us, have you, through your sacrificial labor, somehow seen, come to see yourself accepted by God on the basis of your ministry or your service? rather than wholly and completely on the basis of God's grace. Are you coming to the generous God of this universe and saying, God, you owe me because I have worked so long in the heat of the day. You owe me. And what God would say to us is he would lovingly and gently put us in our place and say, am I not sovereign in my grace? Don't I have the right to give to all exactly in the manner which I see fit? I am gracious to whom I will be gracious. I am compassionate upon whom I will show compassion. And I am sovereign in the expression of my grace to different believers at different times and in different ways. And no amount of service or sacrifice or ministry can obligate me to dispense grace in a way that you see fit. What this passage would say to us is that if you, like me, have served Christ for many years, beware. Beware that in your service you lose sight of the grace of God. Beware that in your faithful ministry, which is commendable, which we encourage, but beware that in the length of your ministry you lose sight of the fact that God will be gracious to whom he will be gracious and that all of life is an expression of his grace. The sign of a legalistic heart in a Christian's life is that you cannot Rejoice when others are blessed. You are jealous, you are envious, you murmur, and you complain, and you forget that everything in your life is an expression of God's undeserved grace.
I close by asking you, what are the things in your life that make you feel like you are more deserving of blessing than another Christian? Is it your education? Is it your intellect? Is it your personality? Is it your giftedness, your strengths? Is it your years of service? Is it the ministries you've been involved in? Is it the people you've discipled? Is it the Bible studies you've taught? Is it the books that you have read? What is it in your heart that makes you feel that you are more deserving of grace than another believer? What I want to call you to do is, dear brother and sister in Christ, come to the cross. Come to the cross. Lay those things down. Lay it all down before the greatest expression of God's grace, which is the Son of God crucified for us. And come to God and say, none of these things can earn or merit your favor in my life. The only thing that I am accepted by is because Jesus Christ has died for me and has shed his blood to save me from my sin. And all I can give to you, God, is not my service, not my sacrifice, not my years of ministry, not my productivity. All I can give to you, God, is my sin, my shame, my condemnation, my judgment. But oh, how I rejoice that as I give that to you, that Christ has paid for it all, and that now by his sacrifice I can receive his grace. I am accepted on the basis of grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed in the scripture alone, and all to the glory of God alone. Would you stand and let's close our time in a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you so much for your amazing grace in our lives. We thank you not only for the grace that justifies us, but also the grace that sanctifies us. We thank you that you have promised to us not only pardoning grace, but strengthening grace, enabling grace, encouraging grace. We thank you that we have not only been saved by grace, but we live by grace, we serve by grace. Even our ministry, our labors, we give to you nothing but our faith and receive your grace because it is all by your grace. It is all for your glory. We have nothing to offer you but our sin. We have nothing to offer you but our shame. We have nothing to offer you but our condemnation and our judgment. And yet we thank you that Jesus Christ has paid for every single one of our sins that we may stand in grace. For all of eternity, we will sing of your grace. Lord, remove the legalism from our hearts. Remove the grumbling, the complaining, the discontentment, the jealousy, the envy. May we learn not to resist grace, but to rejoice in grace. Not only the grace you've shown to us, but the grace you show to others. We thank you and praise you. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.